Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We are studying Daniel chapter 4. I'll just read the first three verses uh, to begin our study. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. The words of Nebuchadnezzar praising God. Heavenly Father, remind us this morning that you are sovereign over all the world and that we do not need to be afraid, that we can trust in you as we live in this world seeking to be faithful to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Our series is How to Live in a Pagan World Without Becoming Pagan. Uh, The uh, first uh, lesson from Daniel chapter 1 was about how to be creatively faithful under pressure. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to uh, select the elite young people there was something in what they were, uh, were given to do that conflicted with their faith. The next chapter was trusting God in an impossible situation. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, told his court wise men, the attendants, that they had to tell him his dream and then the interpretation because Nebuchadnezzar in his second year of reign had no confidence in them. Anybody can make up an interpretation. And if they couldn't tell, them, tell him his dream, he would cut them to pieces He would kill them. It was an impossible situation. In the next chapter, that was not direct persecution against those who trusted in God. And God gave Daniel the revelation of the dream. And Daniel, God through Daniel saved the lives of all the court attendants. Last week, we looked at the fiery furnace and Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had to stand up under persecution. This week... The subject changes a little bit. It's less about how we need to stand up and be faithful in a pagan world. It's reminding us in this chapter that God is sovereign over that pagan world. Look how God deals with Nebuchadnezzar. Now I want you just to imagine this. Suppose this service is our Thanksgiving dinner. On Sunday nights, we'll have a a big feast with our church family. And after the feast, an open mic. And people get up and share what God has done in their lives. It's a wonderful time of testimony and great encouragement. Can you imagine if one who got up to the mic were King Nebuchadnezzar? Hmm. And he said, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. That's astounding. And that is this chapter. This chapter begins and ends with uh, this testimony from Nebuchadnezzar to God himself. And this is what God has done in his life. He's telling the story about how God humbled him and made him come to his senses so that he would praise the most high God, the true and living God. Now, 
we'll see as we work through the passage that it might not be absolutely clear was this Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. There are things that are kind of mixed messages in here. Just like when we get up and we share about what God has done in our lives, we might not get everything correct at a Thanksgiving dinner open microphone. And yet there is something about the testimony that God is at work that should thrill us. Because it reminds us as we try to live as Christians in a world that seems to be becoming more and more unfriendly to faith, to put it in our jargon, more and more pagan, we can become distressed and even fearful and so focused on how well the kingdom of this world is doing that we forget that our God and the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and that's the first part of his testimony, beginning in chapter 4, I mean, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence. Now let's just stop here. If you had been Daniel, would you not already be a little bit insulted? This is Daniel who in the first chapter came up with the, uh, the diet regimen that actually made all the, the uh, elite young men uh, more healthy. God blessed him there so that Daniel's wisdom was shown. But that wasn't the biggie. The biggie was in chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar put this impossible test before all of his wise men and said, you tell me the dream and then I'll listen to your interpretation of it. And Daniel said, no man can do what you're asking, but God can. He reveals himself. And God gave Daniel the dream and the interpretation. That's when Daniel established his creds. So why didn't Nebuchadnezzar go to Daniel first? Did did that occur to you when we were reading this chapter? Why did he go to all the other uh, magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners? In chapter 3, we find that Nebuchadnezzar throws Daniel's friends into the fiery furnace. He's erecting his uh, idol to his God and commanding everyone to bow down to that. And at the end of that chapter, he acknowledges that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is greater than all. And he commands everybody to give praise to that God. But there's still something not quite right about Nebuchadnezzar. Because he says, if you don't obey my command, I'll cut you to pieces. I'll tear you limb from limb. He's still the same old Nebuchadnezzar. And he is sitting in his palace, content and prosperous when he has this dream. And this dream disturbs him because there's something in the back of his mind that says, I told everybody to praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but I have not bowed the knee myself. 
He is not my God. And this dream is scary to me because it might be about me. Come on, my court attendants, come and tell me something comforting about this dream. And they can't interpret it. And then he, he calls Daniel in. The one who's the God, who's the devotee, the uh, one who trusts in the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who delivered from the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar saw that fourth figure who was Christ himself in the fiery furnace. He didn't understand yet, but he knew something was not right between him and God, and so he wasn't sure he wanted to hear from Daniel. It wasn't time yet to go to church. But finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Now, I can just imagine at our Thanksgiving dinner, somebody getting up to the microphone, King Nebuchadnezzar here, and he talks about, we call him Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, a pagan god, and he says, and Daniel, does it, has the spirit of the gods lives in him. We're thinking, oh, where's the theology? He still hasn't professed faith. Now, this could be an indication that go, cuts two ways. One, Nebuchadnezzar could be like Constantine, who in the fourth century was the Roman emperor who acknowledged Christianity and made it an official religion in the Roman Empire. People debate whether Constantine actually converted personally to faith in Jesus Christ or whether he politically acknowledged Christianity and we can't see the heart I don't think it's up to us to resolve that debate only God knows the heart but his profession was not so clear that it's absolutely clear that it was personal faith maybe Nebuchadnezzar has been humbled by God and he's acknowledging God and praising God but he still is talking about my God or here's another alternative as she shares his testimony He knows that he said to Daniel, Belteshazzar, that's the name of my God. I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. He's just reflecting before he was humbled by God, as we'll find out in this chapter. He was still addressing Daniel as one of the devotees of the many gods. This is before I came to Christ. This is the way I thought. He could be just reflecting that honestly as he shares his testimony uh, before all the all of the world of his century. Anyway, he goes on to tell Daniel, here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree, the tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree. And trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots 
bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Did you notice that? It's the vision of the tree. The tree cut down, the stump bound with uh, chains in the grass of the field, and it refers to the tree as let him. I think Nebuchadnezzar knows enough to know this dream might be talking about him. The tree is him. He has some instincts here. That's why he's afraid and terrified. Could this be the meaning of the dream that he will be cut down? Is he the him? Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Seven times. It doesn't say that the times are years. It just says times, seven periods. But we'll see later in the chapter that evidently a long period happened. His hair grew to where it was like eagle's wings. His nails grew to where they they were like the claws of a beast. That can't happen in seven days. Not really even in seven weeks. Perhaps seven months, but seven years is much more likely as the long period of time that this one that the dream is about would be left with the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is still in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It is an interpretation within the dream of the dream. And it is the point of our message this morning that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. If we talk about how to live in a pagan world without becoming pagan, we need to remember, and it should be a comfort to us, that God is sovereign over the pagan world. Jesus said before he gave the great commission to his disciples at the end of Matthew, he said, all authority is given to me, therefore go. That is so comforting and encouraging. We're not sent out as soldiers of Christ into a hostile world that he is not sovereign over. He is sovereign over the world. All authority is given to me, therefore go. So we should be able to go out into the world with much more confidence than we usually have. How many of us paid attention to the news this last week? And as Marty reflected in his welcome and opening and call to worship, became more distressed. Last week I had... Three applications, two of them were concerns about our culture, and the third one was comforting because I reflected on the Right to Life march and how uh, young it was, how many young people participated in it, and how the, uh, the cause of support for life of the unborn seemed to be gaining traction in our culture. And then this week happened. New York passed a law which was in addition to a number of other states that would submit 
the right to abortion all the way up to delivery. In Virginia, that law was proposed. The question was ably asked and clearly answered, and I appreciated the honesty of it, that even in the middle of delivery, a mother could choose not to have that baby. And then our governor said you know, something that implied that after the baby was born, then they'd have a discussion about should the baby live or not. Now, I get all the issues of heroic measures. And the governor as a pediatrician might have been talking about heroic measures, but the scary part is that he was applying an ethic of heroic measures that we don't have to go to heroic measures to cling to life. He was applying that to the law about abortion being all the way through, even the delivery itself. And that was a scary prospect. And and like Marty reflected, I, I was distressed about what was going on in the world and realizing we may, we may still lose traction on that uh, issue that I was encouraged about last week. And I came back to study this passage. And the whole point here is that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. We don't have to be afraid as we would proclaim the uh, love of God, the law of God, the grace of God, the commands of God. We go out into the world armed with all of this to say we are sinners and this is sin. And this is Christ our Savior who died to pay for sin. As we proclaim that, we don't have to be afraid. The world persecutes Christians all the time. It's happening all over the place in the world, not so much for us. Let's not have a pity party when our culture begins to point a finger at us. There are people that are put in prison right now that lose their lives right now in the world. And it's been that way through the centuries. But are we afraid? Let's go on. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. He's still reflecting his, reflecting his pagan, polytheistic mindset at this point then Daniel also called Belteshazzar unless we think it's a different person than the one the king was addressing was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him I didn't expect that I expected from Daniel the peace The confidence that he, as a prophet of God, would bear testimony to God by interpreting the dream and calling Nebuchadnezzar uh, to understand that God would cut him down, would humble him, call him to account. Why was Daniel terrified? There are a couple of ways we could take it. First, we could think that Daniel somehow was buckling. He, He did not want to be the messenger to King Nebuchadnezzar that God was going to cut him down because he was afraid for his own personal safety and that Nebuchadnezzar would be mad at him. I do not think that is consistent with the Daniel we know in the Bible. That's not it. So there's actually a greater and a deeper lesson for us to to learn. Daniel actually has a care and regard for Nebuchadnezzar that he hates to see Nebuchadnezzar go insane. 
When we are, are trying to live in a world and we hear the news and we, we hear the things we're distressed about, it's easy for us to go over the line and start wishing for the downfall of those who distress us. Daniel is not wishing for Nebuchadnezzar's downfall, but he knows that that's what this dream means. That's why he's perplexed. That's why the thought terrifies him, because he doesn't have that vindictiveness, that disdain, that uh, hatred in his heart for the king, who, in the previous chapter, had put his friends in the fiery furnace. That's remarkable. I had to check myself this week. We can stand for uh, what's right and for the principles of what's right, but when we acknowledge that Jesus said, all authority is given to me, we pray first, not for the downfall of those who would stand against God. They will give account to him, and there will be a downfall. That's not our heart's desire. Our heart's desire is that God would touch them and change their hearts and draw them to himself. That's the mission of the church. So as we proclaim the law, we proclaim the grace of God, and we love even those that we would see as enemies who would persecute us. Radical. That's Daniel here. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dreamer its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. See Daniel's heart there. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. So Daniel reiterates the dream to Nebuchadnezzar and now interprets it. This is the interpretation of King This is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. That's our theme. That's the point. And Daniel underlines it. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. When you bow the knee to God, the true and living God in heaven. That's what he means when when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Not you. Not you, O king. You think you rule, heaven rules. 
Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. The fruit of faith is a different life. It's shown here that you'll renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It's not just bow your knee to the king of heavens and then lord it over everybody else. You'll be changed and it'll show. That's our prayer of confession passage. We find in the next section, the dream is fulfilled. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, stop there, twelve months later, how short is our memory? Twelve months later, he's got, had this dream, he's had the interpretation. Twelve months later, he's thinking, oh, that's old news, it did not come to pass. It's really something when 12 months later he said, God really spoke to me in this passage. I remember this sermon. Glenn Kurtz in his Sunday school class remembered a sermon of a tape that his mother sent to him that, was, that had a great influence on him when he was in college. When we remember, that's good. But we often tend to dismiss because it didn't happen immediately. 12 months later, King Nebuchadnezzar says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, what's wonderful about this is this is the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. He said, this is what God has done with me. And he's really acknowledging his sinful attitude here. Twelve months later, this was my attitude. I was still proud. I was high and mighty. I would completely forgotten Daniel's interpretation of that dream that I would be cut down to this. Supreme God in heaven rules over the affairs of men, all the kingdoms of the world. He was back to himself. Verse 31. The words were still on his lips when the voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. That's the third time this is spelled out in this chapter. Three times the ultimate emphasis. Verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers, like the feathers of an eagle, and his nails like the claws of a bird. This is the the verse that seems to speak to a long period of time. The seven times may very well be seven years. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. After the early service, Amish Ray told me that he remembered a sermon uh, from James Montgomery Boyce that said Nebuchadnezzar had been looking down on everyone. He was the high and exalted one. He looked down on everyone in the world. And then he became like a beast where he could only look down. But it was when he raised his eyes toward heaven that he was raised back up again. He was broken to the point until he acknowledged that uh, the God of heaven is the God over all. And he says, my sanity was restored. He came to his senses. That's a reflection of 
the parable of the prodigal son, the one who was so far away, came to his senses and came back to his father. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hands or say to him, What have you done? In his testimony, this has happened. When he raised his eyes to heaven, his sanity was restored and he praised the God of heaven. And he comes back and he's sitting on the throne and he makes this decree. He says, At that same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he said and everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. I misspoke. Did you catch it? And it's an important one. In the last chapter, Nebuchadnezzar decreed everybody else should acknowledge the God of heaven. He didn't issue a decree here. He simply came back and from his throne, he praised and exalted and glorified the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And this is the last words of his testimony. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Then Nebuchadnezzar sits down at his seat at our Thanksgiving feast at the open mic sharing his testimony. I think there's evidence that I'd rather give the benefit of the doubt that God had really worked the change of heart where he was, instead of talking about the gods and the name of my God, he's praising God alone. Two applications. The first one we've been making throughout. God is sovereign over this pagan world. We should not be afraid, nor should we wish for the downfall of those who are on the other sides of issues. We can wish for the change of the issue. We can wish, we can wish that God would be glorified in the laws of our land. But when it becomes personal animosity and self-righteousness, we've forgotten the gospel. We should wish that they would be humbled before God and brought to their senses and raised back up. If that's what we wish, that's not a vindictiveness. So we, we can face a pagan world without fear and without disdain. That's a wonderful position to be in. And it breeds confidence in God. But there's another application too that is more personal. Actually, you don't have to have the realm of Nebuchadnezzar, none of us do, to have the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. Campus Crusade presents the gospel by describing two circles, two kinds of lives. The circles represent different kinds of lives. And there's a throne in the center of each of our lives. You have a throne in your life, it's your throne. Who calls the shots? Who's your God and king? The way we naturally are is for self to be on the throne. We want to please ourselves. 
We want to do what we want. We want to say what's right for us. We want our way. Self is on the throne. That's the same pride as Nebuchadnezzar. To say, this is my life. I don't need God. This is what I've built. This is what I've accomplished. Or, if I haven't accomplished it, I feel like I was wronged and I was robbed and cheated. Oh, pity me because everything's bad done to me. You're still just thinking about yourself in the center. To become a Christian is to receive Christ as Savior, acknowledging he's the one that paid the penalty for sin. But if you receive him as Savior, he is also Lord. He doesn't come into your life to serve you. He says, that throne is my place. And repentance is getting off the throne and turning from the worship of self to serve the true king, the most high. It's Nebuchadnezzar's conversion that you would say, you are my God. I receive you as Savior and as Lord. Now, the old self is always with us. It's always a battle between. The Bible says that the one who would be uh, the disciple of Christ must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Christ. So it's not that we do it once and for all and we perfectly, wholeheartedly given to Christ. We have to recognize there's a struggle for that throne every day. The, we know, we know that we are his when we follow him as Lord. We don't earn our salvation. I'll say that again. We don't earn our salvation by following him as Lord, doing the right things. But when we trust in him as our Savior, we know that we belong to him when we follow him as Lord. Who's sitting on the throne in your life today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Forgive us of the human pride that is common to all, expressed widely in King Nebuchadnezzar, but also expressed in our own hearts. If we've never humbled ourselves before you, repented of our sin and acknowledged our need of such a Savior, I pray that you would do that mighty work in that person's life this morning. And if we have, but we're half-hearted and we, we wrestle over who's who's on the throne today, I pray that you would call us to be more wholehearted, that we would take up our cross daily and die to self and live for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.